This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day as we kick off baseball season. That's another sign of uh, spring and uh, hopefully better weather ahead. As certainly it has been a challenging uh, late winter, early spring for so many parts of the country, but hopefully we're going to be headed in the right direction. We'll talk a little bit about another impact of all the flooding later in today's program. A look at how it's impacted the ethanol industry. It's really uh, had a severe impact on several ethanol plants, uh, their ability to move product. We'll talk about that with the Senior Strategic Advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association, Bob Deneen, a little bit later in the program. We're going to talk markets today with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. And we're going to learn about uh, a red-hot market for U.S. meat products, the Philippines. We'll talk with the Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Joel Haggard will be with us a little bit later on, checking in with us from Hong Kong. But right now, let's uh, check in with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report in Washington, D.C. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Uh, How's it moving in Congress, going in Congress uh, on some type of disaster aid package? I know they're trying to expand it to to include uh, the Midwest flooding this spring. How are they doing? Well, the Senate is supposed to resume uh, consideration of the bill uh, again today. Uh, I don't. I haven't gotten any notice from the Senate that, that a vote has been scheduled, so I don't know exactly when uh, when that will take place. Now, Senator Grassley says it's likely to pass the Senate, um, but then it has to go back to the House, which earlier passed a bill that, uh, of course, did not cover the Midwest because the flooding had not occurred yet. Uh, but also contains more for Puerto Rico than the Senate bill does. So there'll have to be a conference on that, uh, and we'll have to see how it goes. Now, uh, President Trump doesn't want to give a lot of aid to Puerto Rico, so the final resolution of all of this is uh, uncertain. Uh, But as these things usually go, I'm sure there'll be some horse trading and eventually uh, an emergency disaster bill. Well, certainly folks in the Midwest are, are hoping for some help. But this shows the fact that those hit by in the southeast by hurricanes uh, a while back still waiting for some assistance. That shows how long this can take even once Congress decides to do something. Well, that's right. Now, to some degree, the issue about aiding the Northwest or the, the Midwest um, would perhaps only be partial in this bill because the actual costs and the, and the, and what's happened in the Midwest has not been evaluated completely. So this might end up being only the initial part of a of a Midwestern aid bill. Uh, the, the, you know they have they don't really know the grain losses. They don't know the full livestock losses yet. So we'll have to see probably what happens over the coming months. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. All right, Jerry, a lot of attention again on China, uh, hopes there. Um, also, we're starting to hear the drum beat a little more for USMCA. What are you hearing on the trade front in the halls of Congress? Well, I'd say everything is up in the air. Of course, uh, the, what happens with China is, uh, is up to the administration. 
Uh, that's not really a congressional matter at this point, but the negotiators are back in China. Uh, there is a report they had a big dinner last night, which is a nice way to start things off. Uh, on USMCA, we're just seeing all, more and more groups coming together saying, pass this, approve this. Uh, and, of course, that includes the, the lieutenant governors, which uh, are the, perhaps the last the most recent group to uh, to come out in favor of, of approving USMCA. Um, there is a now a wrinkle with with uh, Canada because their parliament is going to go out of session uh, uh, because they have elections coming up. And so really uh, there is a lot of pressure now to get these things done by June, but we have to see how this goes. And, of course, a lot of it has to do now with tariffs as well and lifting the tariffs on steel and aluminum on Mexico and Canada, which uh, the administration has not shown it's willing to do yet. Uh, but members of Congress have certainly spoken out about it. Yes. Well, that's the issue. that's part of the issue. Now, the, Canada says they're, they're not going to approve the agreement if the, if the tariffs on steel and aluminum are still on. Uh, uh, and the President Trump likes keeping these tariffs on, uh, you know, as long as possible, uh, kind of as a negotiating strategy. Uh, but now the, the Senate, particularly Senator Grassley, who chairs the Finance Committee, uh, wants to uh, change the law so that it would not be so easy for a president to impose tariffs like this on national security grounds. Well, as expected this week, the uh, uh, an overwhelming vote against uh, uh, the Green New Deal in the Senate, but uh, that has not stopped people from continuing to talk about it. What are you hearing there in Washington, D.C.? Well, the thing about the Green New Deal is that it kind of sets the agenda for discussion. There, You know, the Green New Deal does not have specific legislation in it, so it's, it's kind of a statement uh, of principles. There seems to be no denying that climate change is now much more on the political agenda, that the general public is more interested in the subject. The issue has been raised so much, and I think it's particularly come to the fore because of the uh, election of the Democrats to the House of Representatives last year, taking the majority. Uh, so it cannot be denied that this is, that this is an issue uh, on which there is pressure on politicians to do something uh, uh, do something about, uh, but uh, so so that's sort of where it is. It's just a lot of talk, but we'll have to see where the talk goes. So you have climate change. You have now health care back in the mix, as well as the immigration, the border issue. Those are big, big items, and a lot of times that that don't, that seems to just kind of paralyze Congress from anything getting done. Well, yes. Uh, there, on immigration, Congress seems impossible to. Uh, it seems impossible to, for them to reach agreement because there's there's just such a stark difference between the people who want to bring, uh, you know, to legalize people who are in the country, such as the people who work on the farms, especially in the dairies, and then the people who want the immigrants who aren't legal to go home. Uh, and so it is hard to get anything done. Uh, I think I have to break in here and say that I just got an email that Larry Kudlow, the White House economic advisor, has said today that the talk between the U.S. and China could go on for months. So, uh, you know, uh, who knows where that stands? I just thought your listeners should know that.
Yeah, thanks for letting us know. And it seems like the news on China, it's like one day it's it sounds so optimistic and the very next day or sometimes later in the same day, it sounds much less optimistic. All right. Well, Jerry, thanks for the report and the, the breaking uh, news item there. We appreciate it. All right. It's always good to talk to you and to, and to your listeners. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Well, the Philippines has become a red-hot market for U.S. meat products. We're going to talk with Joel Haggard, Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. That's next here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. So we just heard the news uh, Jerry Actrum had for us. that uh, Now they're saying the talks with China could go on several more months. Uh, just about the time people get real excited that maybe a deal is close and we get word of something like that. But... That's part of the negotiations. It's going to go on back and forth like that, as it has from us for some time. Um, we talked about the tariff issue. Senate Republicans are trying to head off conflict with the president on this issue. They are urging him not to put new tariffs on auto imports. Um, and the GOP senators are also urging the president to lift those steel and aluminum duties on Canada and Mexico that we were talking about earlier. Many of them have said all along that that, that will have to be done uh, before USMCA even has a chance of passing. And as uh, Jerry referenced earlier, uh, a top Canadian official saying it's pr- that Canada probably would not ratify the new deal if the steel and aluminum tariffs aren't taken off. So that remains to be a a huge part of this issue. And I think a lot of people think the president's keeping them as uh, kind of a negotiating tool, something in his pocket that uh, he can use to kind of push it forward when the time comes. Maybe it's a matter of timing. Uh, Remains to be seen. But uh, that certainly seems to be one of the steps that will have to be taken to get USMCA passed. All right, we are trying to, uh, we may not be able to hook up just yet with Joel Haggard with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Wanted to talk about the Philippines being a hot market uh, for U.S. meat. We're going to keep trying to get him, but he's in Hong Kong, and we're going to keep working on that connection. Meanwhile, we're going to talk markets right now with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, thanks for joining us uh, you know, we're looking at all of these numbers, anticipating all these numbers out from USDA, but uh, really, in light of what's happened with all the flooding in the Midwest, it's going to be some time before we know about acres, right? Yeah, there's no question. In my opinion, you know, whatever we come out with here uh, uh, tomorrow at 11, most likely the trade's already got some sort of a, like a handicap factor involved, you know, and I would say... Uh, 
what people are telling me is whatever the corn acreage number comes in at, a lot of folks are already kind of discounting that maybe by a million acres, somewhere in that ball game, uh, thinking that if this spring is uh, has inclement weather, that number would grow. Uh, most all of us uh, know it's I guess it's probably been talked about enough lately but you know prevent plant the last couple of years is uh, certainly uh, wasn't a whole lot of acreage and so uh, the way that this spring is shaping up and uh, with the snowpack we still see especially like in North Dakota and the temperatures some of us have seen uh, there's no question that uh, the chance that prevent plant could grow and corn acres could go down I, I think is uh, certainly present right now. Yeah, it remains to be seen just how long it will be before some of those folks can get to the fields, if at all this year. What do you think the market reaction is going to be to that? Well, that's a great question. And so if I look at the uh, average at 91.3, I mean, Mike, I'll tell you, if, if we come in below 91.5 for a printed number tomorrow, my personal opinion is that's friendly. I, I don't think that when you start plugging in a – for instance, a 90 and a half or 90 uh, million acres uh, planted, uh, which some people I think are going to be plugging in. I don't think that you can get to bearish corn. Uh, you know, to me, you get into some pretty tight situations. Now, yes, there's probably some issues we need to address as far as uh, uh, usage goes, uh, looking at ethanol usage and then looking at some of our export implications. But uh, at the same time, our carryout uh, is small enough that that stock's use ratio needs to be watched very, very closely. We're talking with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Historically, especially in the last several years, we know markets don't get too excited about late planting. They just assume it's going to get done. This is a little different situation, though, and over quite a few acres. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And so, uh, you know, we've been weaned away from that. As you know, you know, the, the the trade typically likes to say, well, geez, these guys can get over a ton of acres quickly. And that's true. I mean, heck, Mike, we, we you know, we farm a little under 3,000 acres, and we can plant our whole crop running, um, you know, a corn and bean planter at the same time in five, six days if we need to. Uh, and so we all know we can get across the ground quickly. This year's different, though, in that last fall, uh, a lot of significant issues as far as field work getting done. Uh, you know, a lot of folks weren't able to leave the land the way they wanted to, didn't get out and get field work done, not much anhydrous was put on. There's a lot of challenges present right now, and with a lot of the corn belt staying wet, uh, we're just putting ourselves into a bit of a box. And I think the trade's going to pay very close attention, especially, as I mentioned before, with stocks use ratio getting to the levels we've seen. Uh, we just can't afford to have low acreage and then an inclement weather scenario this summer on top of it. So we were talking about building this friendly scenario for corn. Does this add to that? You know, I think that it, it certainly supports the market for the time being. Now, with that being said, you know, if we would end up getting 91 million acres planted, for instance, and then you have uh, benign weather this summer with the kind of technology that we're planting in these fields, then, you know, uh, obviously some of your best sales opportunities would be around some of these discussions we're having right now until we get this crop planted. Uh, the funds typically don't take this kind of a short into the growing season and hold on to it. And with them looking at a 230 to 250,000 short still, it's certainly got some sort of an excitement in it. I think there's probably more risk for a feeder, for instance, uh, to go to the upside than what there is for a producer right now to the downside. But that is in the short term. 
uh, as we move farther into this growing season, if we if we look like we're going to still get decent production, I don't I can't get super excited about this corn market given uh, the fact that the soybean market is certainly not doing a whole lot to help it out. I was going to say now let's talk about the soybean market. Spot uh, there. <laughs> well, I don't know how hard you want me to look, but uh, you know, for the time being, it's just. Uh, Fundamentally, Mike, you know as well as I do, this is not a friendly setup. Uh, you know, whether we're talking U.S. stocks or whether we're talking uh, world stocks, I just don't know how you get super excited about uh, the soybean market. Now, with that being said, the bean market doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. Money comes into this market at times when we least expect it. Uh, now, you know, seeing the Brazilians are selling uh, uh, soybeans to uh, – you know, to uh, Europe, uh, you know, and then you see the EU's talking to uh, President Xi from China. You know, there's a lot of things going on right now that are of great concern to me if we don't get this U.S.-Chinese trade deal put together with some concrete purchases uh, that we can police. Uh, you know, I guess I just can't, can't get too friendly. And so we, we've been pretty aggressive on soybean sales so far this year, and I can tell you that if we would get some sort of a bullish surprise uh, out of acreage tomorrow or anything that would drive the market higher, which I think the only two things I can think of would be uh, some sort of a, a bullish acreage number or uh, the U.S.-Chinese trade deal. If we get one of those two things happen, uh, we're liable to be uh, pretty close to uh, completely protected on our soybeans for 2019. A lot of ifs and questions. Uh, it's got to be uh, challenge, even more challenging than usual to, to market this year. It is. I think this is one of the more challenging years that I can remember because we have so many geopolitical concerns that we're thinking about. Uh, we don't really know what our trade scenario is going to be. Uh, you know, you see this morning that just the one province in China, they lost 41% of the sows there. Uh, there's just a lot going on from a demand perspective, and not a whole lot of it, especially with soybeans, is of a friendly nature. So it's uh, very concerning, uh, especially looking at the kind of profitability we've had with regards to soybeans the last five or six years. Uh, this looks like it could be a year that uh, is completely different than what we've been uh, experiencing here recently. Yeah, so when we look at all these scenarios, you know, we've talked so much about China waiting for that, waiting for that, uh, wondering if some of it gets factored in ahead of time or if it's uh, how do you, you do you expect a big bump when there's an announcement or it, it, it almost seems like it's the longer it goes, uh, it, the more mood, muted that uh, that bump could be. Right, and you know, Mike, I, I believe I may have told you this before, but I've felt recently like the bean market was probably a little too high to begin with, especially concerning our fundamentals. I, I, I don't know that uh, I expect any sort of long-lasting rally uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but with that being said, if uh, we came out here uh, at noon today and President Trump said that we've guaranteed that we're going to you know, export uh, more beans than what we've been exporting the last uh five or six years, you better believe the market's going to spike higher. Now, I think that uh, that could be a short-lived rally, and I think any producer needs to be cautious as to not have their offers in ahead of time. All right, Matt, thanks for the update, and we'll stay in touch as, as these developments continue, and we'll see what happens. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Stay with us. More coming up here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We have made our phone connection to Hong Kong. With us now is Joel Haggard, Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Joel, thanks for joining us. Sure, happy to. Hey, we've got some uh, really some exciting news to talk about when it comes to our meat exports to the Philippines. Uh, that's become quite a market, hasn't it? Uh, it sure has. Uh, we've been uh, watching the market uh, for decades, actually, but uh, we're getting into uh, some record uh, export numbers there as that economy uh, is just really pumping along. And uh, that, uh, that means uh, more meat consumption and... Um, in terms of some of the, the normal uh, meat access issues uh, we've had, it's been pretty quiet, so it's humming along nicely. How big of a market is that Philippines market, and what's the potential for continued growth there? Well, sure. Let me put it in perspective. So um, the Philippines uh, took about a little over $200 million uh, of uh Beef, U.S. beef and pork last year, and um, if you add in the poultry, it's, it adds up to about a quarter of billion dollars. So um, that ranks number nine, uh, kind of on our list. If you um, if you place it and, and rank uh, our exports by value, so that's behind Colombia, China, and Taiwan, but it's in that top ten. And um, last year it was our fastest growing top ten market in terms of value. So. Uh, it's one we're watching closely. What meat products, what cuts are popular in the Philippines? Yeah, the Philippines is an interesting market because uh, you, it has it has demand from the, the small segment of the wealthy population for the real top-end cuts. Uh, that could be uh, you know, USDA chilled prime steak cuts. But then uh, the... The mass of the market, most of the volume, um, uh, are price-sensitive meats, uh, beef, uh, Indian buffalo meat, uh, pork variety meats um, that go into further processing. The Philippines has a very sophisticated uh, meat processing industry, which which turns uh, this imported raw material into very inexpensive items like um, hot dogs and uh, formed ham and, and bacon. 
And um, that, that price point to the consumer, because the per capita income in the Philippines is still quite low, um, it, it is a price-sensitive market. So most of the imports are, I would say, um, uh, more uh, inexpensive items. Who are our competitors in that market, and what's our advantage there? Yeah, well, boy, it's one of those markets where everyone has access. So uh, in the Philippines, you see Indian buffalo meat, you see Brazilian beef, all kinds of European pork. Um, again, at the high end, you have the Australian grain-fed Wagyu competing with our uh, upper choice and prime cuts. Um, Canada is very strong as a pork supplier. Um, but uh, in terms of items, um, for us, the, the pork variety meat category has really performed well. And uh, those are items such as livers, um, jowls, masks, diaphragm meat and cheese. So it's, uh, it's a thing that, that we like to export because we don't uh, consume those much at home. We're talking with Joel Haggard. He's Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. So, Joel, the Philippines, a really good market for our U.S. meat products. What are some other uh, key markets that you're working in there in that Asia-Pacific region that we should be watching closely? Well, with all the trade skirmishes going on in the northern part of Asia, uh, our our federation has really um, kind of doubled down on uh, – our coverage in Southeast Asia. So uh, uh, Vietnam is a market we're watching very closely. Um, it, as as uh, everyone knows, it has African swine fever, which is hitting at a time of very high pork prices and low supplies anyway. So uh, Vietnam hasn't been a large uh, meat and poultry importer in the past, but um, it's definitely trending up now. And uh, then also uh, Indonesia is a very interesting beef, uh, beef market. Uh, it's got a, a massive population and one that we think uh, for the long term is going to be one of those uh, um, real, really stellar markets. And then interestingly, the United States uh, exports close to a quarter billion dollars of pork to Australia, and uh, that just seems to be growing. Hmm. You mentioned African swine fever. We know the situation. What we hear of the the situation in China and that that disease continues seems to spread. And you mentioned that reports of it in Vietnam. Do we, do we have any indication? Is this thing close to being under control, or is it still concerned that it could spread more? Well, uh, we were reading some uh, releases today out of Vietnam. Um, Vietnam is. The Vietnam authorities are very concerned about the outbreak spreading uh, down to uh, its southern re- uh, region. So Vietnam's a very long country uh, that runs uh, from north to south, but um, kind of the heart of the, the consumption um, uh, pool and, uh, and, and the heart of the, the producers are down in that southern region. So they're very, they are very concerned about it uh, uh, migrating down to the south. So as you do market development work, I mean, it must be almost refreshing to anytime you have a market that you can work in that doesn't have uh, the tariffs and the trade issues that we have in other parts and other markets. If you get a market that doesn't have all that, how much easier does that make your work? 
oh, a lot easier. But think about it from the perspective of an exporter, because the exporters are the ones that are really facing risk from uh, uh, trade bearers that may pop up suddenly. Um, the Philippines, I, I have to say, we've had our issues uh, over the years. Um, they have a, a very vocal uh, uh, pork industry that um, would like to see uh, imports uh, more controlled. But um, thank goodness in the last couple of years, um, importers have had a, a fairly um, easy time clearing products. There are always issues. There are always challenges in any market, right? Absolutely. Uh, we have issues in every market we deal in, uh, from small to big issues. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the Philippines, um, you know, again, I think uh, I think maybe the, the, the politicians and uh, certainly the people, they rely on that um, inexpensive uh, imported raw material. It, it's really kind of a lifeblood for uh, uh, for the protein sector, and that protein sector is really important to the population. I'm always amazed when I look at the overall numbers of our meat exports. Even with the trade tensions and trade wars and the tariff issues, uh, we still move a lot of product, and those numbers continue to go up. I know. It's, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, today we're talking about the uh, our beef exports to China. I was in China earlier today, and uh, even with 37% duty, I was speaking with uh, an importer last night, and, uh, you know, they have customers that are willing to pay the extra. Are they complaining? Yes, they're complaining about the price, but uh, their customers like it. So um, when you have customers that want the product, especially uh, kind of uh, something like high-quality beef that's really not, uh, available from other countries, um, they'll pay more for it. So what what do your people there in China say? I mean, if they're buying, if they're willing to buy even with the tariffs and pay the extra, uh, what would that mean if those tariffs come off? Uh, about the market potential there, what could we see? Well, we see incredible uh, pork demand and beef demand. Um, China just released its uh, first two months of uh, uh, import data, and uh, the beef imports, uh, I mean, they're just skyrocketing. And uh, this is on a very large base already. Um, The country imported over 200,000 tons of beef in two months, so it's just just unprecedented. Uh, Fifteen years ago probably would have been uh, 2,000 tons, so... um, it's just phenomenal, uh, uh, the demand there. And, uh, but uh, the tariffs uh, are really important because we compete in these markets. And um, we, we, with that tariff disadvantage, we are, uh, we're an expensive uh, protein. So, in other words, the demand is there. It, it remains to be seen who's going to fill that demand. And with the tariffs in place, it makes it harder for us to be the uh, supplier when someone else can uh, do it maybe uh, for less cost than we can. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have, uh, for example, in China, we're facing 62% duty on pork, while others are paying 12% on beef. Uh, we face a 37% duty, while Australia is paying uh, 6%. So that's a wide gap to overcome. So, uh, but if those duties come down, uh, I think we'll really see some uh, tremendous numbers. Joel, thanks for the update. It's always interesting to hear uh, what's 
what you're finding out there on the ground and in these countries and uh, what's it, you know, what's being said and what's being worked on and the impact that it's having on our exports. Thank you for the update. Thank you. Joel Haggard, Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. I always find it interesting uh, when we can talk to those people on the ground in these other countries that we're doing business with and trying to do more business with. Well, for the ethanol industry, it's been hard to do business uh, with a lot of the uh, plants being affected by the flooding. We'll get an update on that situation with Bob Deneen with the Renewable Fuels Association. That's next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacor Zemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected weed acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio, you're covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so we've been talking a lot about the, uh, the impact of the flooding. Uh, fields flooded, grain bins collapsed, cattle lost, roads and bridges and rail lines uh, damaged. But also there's an impact on the ethanol industry. Uh, a lot of ethanol plants surrounded by water, having trouble moving product. This comes at a time when the ethanol industry has been uh, uh, struggling anyway, the, uh, the, the economy. So this really has an impact on these ethanol plants. Let's talk about that with Bob Deneen, Senior Strategic Advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association. Bob, thanks for joining us. Do we have any uh, assessment yet of how the flooding is impacting the ethanol industry? Well, the, the biggest success, the biggest impact, as you sort of noted, was uh, most of our product, of course, moved by rail, and there are rail lines across the Midwest that uh, are down, and and that is certainly complicating things. As we look at uh, production, though, we, you know, we're a pretty resilient uh, industry, and production was only down three percent uh, last week. So uh, there's certainly some impact, uh, but uh, the good news is, prior to the flooding. Uh, we were looking at record uh, stocks of ethanol across the country. So there shouldn't be any shortages. There shouldn't be any, uh, you know, problems still being able to get ethanol blended gasoline. It's just, uh, you know, there will be some logistical issues for a while that, that we'll work through. Yeah, for the for those plants, though, in the flooded areas, uh, and I've talked to some folks at, at, at a plant uh, the the challenge has been to get the ethanol out of the plant and get it transported to uh, to their customers. No question, and and as a consequence, some plants have slowed production. Perhaps they are, you know, getting to the point where that they don't have any place else on site to 
to put the product, and so we may see more of an impact uh, this week or next. But uh, so far, uh, we've been able to uh, get enough product out and, and uh, utilize our own storage on site, and it hasn't been the you know the devastating impact that you're seeing on so many farms across uh, Iowa and, and Nebraska. It's just been tragic. But it's been another uh, another blow to what has been a struggling uh, uh, economy for a lot of the uh, folks in the ethanol industry. Well, indeed. And, you know, you've got to put it in some context, though. I mean, uh, you might lose 10 or 20 million gallons of ethanol production at the end of the day as a consequence of this flooding. Well, that pales in comparison to the tsunami of lost production that we've endured as a consequence of EPA's, uh, you know, unjustified waivers to the RFS, which are, you know, now at $2.6 billion, and we understand that Administrator Wheeler is contemplating another 41 waivers, uh, and even if they're partial, it would have an impact uh, far greater than what Mother Nature has wrought upon this industry. And, and that's just unconscionable. So University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin continues to say that the, those uh, small refinery exemptions are not having that much of an impact on the ethanol industry. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, it's all in the assumptions, right? And I, I think uh, he's just not taking into account uh, the fact that the industry has been able to buy back some measure of market share by dramatically lowering our price. Uh, and, uh, you know, and exports have certainly taken up some of the slack as well. So you can't just look at uh, the production levels and think that that's going to give you a clear picture of what the impact is on the industry uh, because the economic impact has been. Uh, quite severe. We are looking at some of the lowest prices uh, relative to gasoline that we've ever seen, even even today, in the in the wake of the reduced production as a consequence of the of the flooding, we're still 50 cents cheaper than than gasoline, and so we've been you know able to buy back uh, some of that lost market share, but uh, the impact is is very very real. Well, the clock continues to tick on getting E15 approved by by June 1st. Uh, how are you handicapping this race? Are we going to make it? Uh, EPA continues to say that they'll make it. There's a public hearing, of course, tomorrow in, in Michigan, and we'll be there testifying, as will uh, many of the ethanol industry and farmers across the country. And I think EPA is going to hear it loud and clear uh, you got to get this done by May 31, or you know, we're going to lose another season, uh, and that's just unacceptable. The president has made it clear this will get done by uh, this summer's VOC uh, control season, and uh, EPA just needs to get it done. You know, they've complicated their life by including in the RVP rule, the E15 rule, uh, measures for RIN reform that are really complicated and impact the marketplace in ways that really need to be evaluated. And we think that EPA could assure a timely promulgation of the E15 rule if they would just sever the RIN reform stuff and let that go on its own track. Now, there's no reason for them to go together. It's They are both uh, authorized in different parts of the Act. They're going to have different implementation dates. 
they impact the markets in, in much different ways. They, the one doesn't have anything to do with the other. So, you know, we are hopeful that uh, in order to get this done on time, EPA severs the RIN reform proposals from the E15 proposals and, and gets it done on time. Yeah, when you're having public meetings at the end of March on something that is scheduled to go into effect or you want it to go into effect June 1, that's getting it pretty close. Yeah, it would be a uh, fairly heroic effort on the part of EPA, but, you know, they continue to say they'll do it, and I hope they are right. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Thank you, Bob. Always good to talk with you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Take Bob Deneen, Senior Strategic Advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association. So that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we're going to take more of a look at what's going on in Congress, uh, where they're at trying to get some kind of disaster package passed that would include help for those in the Midwest and uh, whether they can get past uh, the sticking point, uh, the difference between the House and the White House over aid to Puerto Rico. That has to be overcome and some more things. We'll talk about that and, and latest on the trade issues as well. So stay with us tomorrow here on AOA.